Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 33. That's where we'll be this morning. We will work our way through that entire text. If you weren't here last week, uh, we began a, a two-part series um, based out of Genesis 32 and 33. So we're going to conclude that two-part series today. Uh, I've entitled that series, God, Jacob, and the Need for Character Transformation. God, Jacob, and the Need for Character Transformation. This will be part two of, of that series, and we'll be in Genesis 33. Well, we are all in need of character transformation, are we not? We are all in need of uh, metamorphosis, right? That's where we started last week, uh, looking at several animals that actually go through metamorphosis. And then we got to the text of Genesis 22, and we began working our way through the fact that Jacob, he didn't need a physical metamorphosis, but he needed spiritual metamorphosis. He needed uh, to be regenerated. He needed to be changed. I'd like to point out one uh, sort of caveat, one nuance that we need to understand about character change and transformation. In the book of Genesis, Genesis doesn't necessarily document the moment in time that anybody came to saving faith, right? We know that regeneration or salvation is an instantaneous act where God brings into the heart of the sinner new life, regeneration, so Genesis, when we talk about the believer Genesis, the entire book doesn't necessarily uh, define or picture uh, salvation or regeneration in that manner, although it, it agrees with that. It is an instantaneous act. What Genesis does is Genesis shows the fruit or the virtue or the effect of the characters and their changed life. So if you read through Genesis 32 and 33, and you happen to go back through that this week, you won't see that instantaneous moment where Jacob was converted. Instead, you see over two chapters, manifestation or fruit uh, that his character has been transformed, that he is spiritually a new man, okay? So uh, I want that to be one of your takeaways today, is that what we're seeing from Jacob over two chapters in this explosive scene is evidence that his character has been transformed, which is critical for us. And our character, it must be transformed. We need to be brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the light. If you don't know Christ, that's my prayer for you, that this message, this truth will ignite in your heart and you would come to saving faith in Christ. Your character would be transformed. But for those of us who are in Christ, like Jacob here, we need to consistently show progress in our character transformation. And, and that would be my encouragement for all of us who are in Christ, is that we continue to be molded and shaped and formed in the likeness of Jesus Christ until he returns, until glorification. Well, one of the underlying themes that flows throughout all 50 chapters of Genesis is the idea that 
the promised seed of Genesis 3.15, the fact that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, who would ultimately be Christ, the seed of that woman always passes through a righteous line or a virtuous line. In other words, if you read through Genesis, that 3.15 seed is never passing through an unrighteous line or a line, you could say the non-chosen line or an unregenerate line. It's always working through righteous people, virtuous people. We see that going all the way back to the beginning in the early chapters. Let me just show this to you quickly here as we sort of uh, begin looking at our text, Genesis 33, in this light. The promised seed's righteous line always passes through the righteous. And this goes all the way back to the early chapters of Genesis, beginning in chapter 4 and chapter 5 with Seth. And then it progresses to Genesis chapter 6 and Noah And then we get to Genesis chapter 9, and it passes down through his firstborn son, Shem. And then we get to Genesis 11 and Genesis 12, and we come to those characters you're really familiar with, with Abraham in Genesis 12, and that promised seed in Genesis 3.15 passes through him. And then if you recall back to the storyline, Abraham's first two children, Ishmael was really the firstborn, and then you have Isaac. Well, of course, Genesis goes on to tell us that the 315 seed is not working through uh, the unrighteous line, which would be Ishmael, but through the righteous, which would be Isaac. And then from that point, we come up to the person of Jacob. And for the longest time in Genesis, really about six or so chapters, although we are told that the promised seed will go through Jacob, we haven't seen evidence of the fact of him being a righteous man. That's sort of the critical point of chapters 32 and 33. This guy needs transformation because God has said that he will work through him, but he's not showing any evidence that he's essentially ready for that, if you want to put it that way. So if you jump forward, as I mentioned last time, if you jump forward to chapter 37 and 39, Joseph is shown to be righteous, but even more importantly, when you get to chapter 38, Judah is shown to be a righteous man. And we know from Matthew 1, Luke 3, and Revelation 5 and 6 that Jesus, who's the fulfillment of the promised seed, is ultimately a descendant of Judah. Okay? So again, to sort of put a bow on that, working through Genesis, the characters that the 315 seed works through our characters that display virtue and righteousness. That's what we're seeing here in chapters 32 and 33. It's critical that Jacob's character be transformed because God himself has said that the older Esau will serve the younger Jacob. And so we see that transformation of Jacob unfold here in 32 and 33. Now, if you were here last time, you'll remember the story. It's a critical point in Jacob's life. He's been told by God to go back home. So in light of that reality, Jacob knows he's going back home, but things did not end well with who? His brother Esau, right? Like Esau threatened, look, I'm going to kill you for what you did with the birthright and blessing. 
So Jacob, he leaves. He's gone for two decades. Now he's on his way back. So he's sort of priming the pump here. He's going to send messengers back to Esau to let him know that he's coming. So the messengers delivered a message to Esau, and then they returned to Jacob. And if you remember, the messengers came back and said, okay, we delivered the message, but Esau, he's, he's on his way. Oh, and by the way, Esau has 400 men, right? So in response, Jacob takes full responsibility. You remember, what did he do with his camp of people? Remember, he split them in two. He split his camp in two. And then after he made that strategic move, he then called upon God. He called upon God. He asked for divine help. He prayed for deliverance. He prayed for rescue. He knew that his, his responsibility and his efforts could only go so far in this situation. He knew he had to call on Yahweh. He had to call on his God to come through and to save him, to deliver him, to rescue him. Again, this is evidence of his character transformation. Remember, I tried to draw your attention to the fact if you are in Christ, evidence of your character transformation is that you go to the throne of God, you go before him in prayer, and you consistently, not perfectly, but you consistently go to the Father in prayer. Jacob is demonstrating that mentality. So he goes to God in prayer, praying for deliverance, praying for help. And then next, if you remember, he sends gifts. Um, He's essentially buttering up Esau in, in a roundabout way. That's what he's doing. So in droves and in waves, in movements, you could say, he sends gifts to Esau in preparation. Well, as the night came... And Jacob was still a good distance away from Esau. Jacob is all alone and sort of out of the nowhere, kind of shockingly and in a way that sort of jolts the narrative, who does he encounter? The angel of the Lord, uh, the eternal son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ appears to Jacob and uniquely in that moment transforms his name. He gives him a new name, which is vital, showing us and representing for us that he has a new what? Character. He has a new character. And that's essentially where we left off in chapter 32, is that Jacob wrestles with the eternal Son of God. Now, Kenneth Matthews, he rightly says... By the change in name to Israel, the passage announces that Jacob's moral character is about to go a metamorphosis. So again, that's sort of in line with what we're working our way through in chapters 32 and 33, is that a dramatic change has happened to this guy. Let me ask you to think about your own life. Think about what you were before Christ and the dramatic change that your life has now uh, taken upon you. Although you still have the same name, (laughs) you have been radically transformed. And that's what we see here in, in these chapters. So what's the point of 32 and what's the point of the review? Chapter 32 last week is to show the progression of the Genesis narrative as it relates to Jacob And that the promised seed will go through him. That's yes and amen, Genesis 3.15. 
But these chapters also position us as the reader to see a radical shift in Jacob's behavior. He's no longer the old deceiver, but he is a new man. So that brings us to chapter 33. Well, what's the main idea or the main theme of chapter 33 that we'll be looking at this morning? Well, chapter 33 records the spiritual high point for Jacob as he reconciles with Esau. And his character continues to progress from a deceiver to a man of righteousness. So let let me put it this way. In chapter 32, we see a reconciliation between God and Jacob. So we see a divine reconciliation. Chapter 33 for us presents us with a human reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. So you, you could really think of the chapters really in those two forms. And by the way, Brothers and sisters, this is ever true in our lives as well. If we are in Christ, we have first been reconciled to God. And by default, that demands that we are reconciled to people in this world. Just in terms of uh, relationship, relationally. we'll, We'll speak some more on that later. Well, this scene, this entire chapter for us, uh, can be broken down into just two simple parts. Two simple parts, and that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, The first part is that Jacob and Esau reunite. Jacob and Esau reunite. So hopefully you're there in Genesis 33. I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 4 of that chapter. Uh, Then Jacob, he lifted his eyes and he looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front and Leah and her children next and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Now, it's interesting, and I think this is worthy of underlining here in your Bible or making a note of it in your notes to draw attention to this later on, is that the text opens by saying that Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. Well, this is a familiar phrase in Genesis, so of course I know we haven't been studying Genesis here in Roots, but if you go back and read Genesis, at critical points in the lives of certain characters you will see this phrase, and they lifted their eyes. In fact, you could go back, and we don't have time to turn there, but in chapter 14, we're told that Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked over the promised land. In chapter 18, we're told that Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw two angels and the angel of the Lord. And in chapter 24, verse 63, we are told that Isaac, he lifted up his eyes and saw his wife, Rebekah. So again, this is to draw our eyes and draw our attention to the fact of how critical this moment is. He lifted up his eyes and uh, he looked. He sees Esau coming with 400 men. Of course, he doesn't know what's going to happen. He's strategically planned out what he can do from his part. He's called on divine help, 
But as they are coming to meet and they have eyes on one another, he's not exactly sure what's going to happen. He lifts his eyes, he sees Esau and 400 men, so he begins, Jacob does, to divide up his children amongst his wives, uh, maids, concubines, and those things. He divides up the concubines and their children. He divides up Leah and her children, Rachel and her child, Joseph. They're, They're all divided up here. Now notice, he places, Jacob does, he places Rachel last And look at the end of verse 2, the only son that the narrator mentions by name is who? Joseph. That's absolutely critical. So not only do we see here from Jacob who his favorite wife is, that's already been revealed in the Genesis story, but we also see his favorite son. So this is sort of, again, priming the pump for what comes on or what happens later in Genesis In chapter 37, when all of the brothers are absolutely furious and livid that Joseph is Jacob's favorite son. So you see that preparation here, this favoritism, you could say, for Jacob, for Rachel and Joseph. So here in this part of the story, though, because Jacob's character has transformed, we're going to see five acts of humility We'll see five acts of humility from Jacob. The first act of humility is that Jacob bows to the ground. Again, the early chapters of Genesis, there's no bowing to the ground by Jacob at all. He's just walking around taking birthrights and blessings. Verse 3, he bows to the ground. But he himself passed on ahead. Notice he's the first one. He's going ahead of everyone, and he bows down to the ground seven times. I mean, this is radical character transformation. Jacob goes ahead of his family, and he bows down to the ground seven times. Bowing just means prostrating oneself before superior. So not only is he bowing down in in a physical way, but he's trying to create an environment where he is letting Esau know that he himself, Jacob, is inferior. This is humility. By the way, can we think of other times in the book of Genesis when we have people bowing down before one another? Yeah, jump forward to Joseph. All of the brothers do what? Bow down before him in Egypt. Jump forward to Genesis 48 when Joseph goes in to have his sons blessed by Jacob. What does Joseph do there? I bet you can guess. He bows down. All right, so this idea of bowing down in humility and respect is all throughout Genesis. It's amazing. The second act of humility that we see here is that Esau physically shows his affection. He physically shows his affection. Esau shows his affection by um, verse 4, running meeting Jacob, embracing him, falling on his neck, kissing him, and then weeping. Notice that there's five verbs here that show Esau's reaction. So we're seeing humility all over the scene by both of these men. We're told here that Esau runs. That was uncommon in the ancient world. You, just, you didn't run back in the day, right? You just didn't do that. 
It would require having to sort of lift up your garments and show your skin and show your legs. That's very opposite from like the short shorts all the guys wear now, right? (laughs) So Esau, he's running. Again, this is showing humility. This is not normal. He runs after Jacob. He's showing humility. He embraces him. He falls on his neck in a good way. He kisses him, and then they weep. Now, if you were to go back and read the early chapters in uh, the Isaac Toledo, referring to the Jacob and Esau story, this is not how the brothers left off. (laughs) They were basically at each other's throats two decades prior. Now they come back to meet one another. Jacob is essentially on the ground bowing before him. Esau comes back, runs after Jacob, embraces him, falls on him, kisses him, and they, they, they just weep. I mean, this is full restoration. This is full reconciliation. Maybe you've experienced to some degree something like this in your life, where not only have you been reconciled to God, but you've been reconciled to someone in your life where things didn't end well at a moment in time. You two have come together and you have embraced. You have reconciled. That relationship has been restored. It's amazing that we see that here. Now, it's interesting that as Moses is talking about this story, just looking at it from Esau's side of things, we have no idea what he's really thinking. I mean, what, what made him change or what made him view Jacob differently? We, we don't know. We just know that something has happened to Esau, but more importantly, from our story, we see Jacob and his transformation. So Jacob and Esau have reunited, and things seem to be going well. We see another act of humility here, and that is that Jacob's family bows to the ground. Jacob's family bows to the ground, so humility is all over this scene. Go to verse 5. He lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? Again, you see sort of that lifting up the eyes motif here. Esau lifts up his eyes and he says, who are these people with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel and they bowed down. Again, this is a critical point in Esau's life. But it's also a critical point in Jacob's. Notice Jacob's response, verse 5, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. There's that uh, language of humility. He's calling himself a servant. He's attributing all of his kids to who? To God. Brothers and sisters, I mean, this is how I would stir you on in your vocabulary, in your terminology, in your life and in your conversations. Jacob is attributing everything that he has to God. And not only that, he's taking the posture of a humble servant. Uh, This is really a template for how we ought to speak and how we ought to be in our lives. 
Notice the two maids and the children came to Esau. They bowed down. Jacob's wives, they came to Esau and they bowed down. Notice again, the only one of Jacob's children that are mentioned is Joseph. They all bow down. They all lay prostrate before Esau. And as a reminder, this is not worship. This is an act of respect. This is an act of respect. That brings us to a fourth act of humility that we see on the scene. And that is that Jacob offers Esau gifts. Jacob offers Esau gifts. Verse 8. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? Jacob said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, No, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand. For I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, this is verse 11, please take my gift which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him and he took it. Let's stop there. So Esau, he seems to be a little puzzled by the abundance of gifts that continue to flow his way. I mean, Jacob had already sent droves of gifts and they continue to come. So in verse 8, he simply asks, well, what do you mean by all of this? Jacob responds pretty forthright. Jacob says, look, I, I just want to make things right with you. I mean, Jacob knows that he messed up 20 years ago. It's sad to think that it took this long for them to reconcile. But that's where Jacob's at. He, I want to make things right. I want to be right with you, Esau. I'm right with God. Essentially, what he is saying, I'm right with God. Let me make it right with you. So verse 9, Esau says, he, he says, basically, I have plenty of goods and supplies. Just keep what you have. And this is courteous, and it's a classy rejection of Jacob's offer. But what this shows, as both of them go back and forth about this exchange of gifts, is that they are reconciled. They are good. They are on right terms. Verse 10 Jacob continues to press that Esau take. I mean, you guys been around people before, maybe like your parents. Like my parents still do this to, to this day. Time after time, they press on and press on and press on that I go back for seconds and thirds to eat. <laughs> they, they just, there's plenty of food. There's plenty of it. Just go get more. There's only so much I can eat these days. But that's what we see here. (laughs) Jacob just continues to press on. Over the top, you could say. Now notice verse 10. This is critical. Verse 10, Jacob says, For I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Uh, Verse 10, you could underline that. For I see your face as one sees the face of God. 
I believe this verse to be the most important verse and containing the most important statement in the chapter, this face-to-face language. In chapter 32, Jacob had a face-to-face encounter with God. 32.30, solidifying his transformation vertically. The fact that Jacob uses this language face-to-face as it relates to Esau, is telling us that there is a reconciliation horizontally. This demonstrates his character transformation as it relates to Esau. Kenneth Matthews says, For Jacob, the transformation of his moral character would be incomplete if he did not also experience reconciliation at the human dimension. This is evidence, the fact that he is now right with Esau is evidence that he has been dramatically changed. In other words, his life is a reflection of the new life that he has spiritually. And it's always like this, brothers and sisters. The way that you live always reflects your true spiritual condition, not perfection. Jacob was never perfect, and he will never be perfect in the Genesis narrative, but he has acting as if he has been changed, consistently showing fruit, fruit of righteousness. This is a challenge for us who claim Christ. Do we live like it? Not the perfection of our life, but the direction And although this text was written several thousand years ago, it speaks to us evermore today. May we be like Jacob in the sense that we live like we claim and we live in accordance with what we profess. He has seen God face to face and now he's expressing his face to face relationship with Esau. Well, that brings us to a fifth act of humility in this scene. And that is Esau offers Jacob protection. Esau offers Jacob protection. Pick up the story in verse 12. Then Esau said, let us take our journey and go and I will go before you. But he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Sirah. Verse 15, Esau said, Please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau offers to accompany his brother back home. It's a gracious offer. Probably to make sure he gets there safely. I mean, Esau is willing to gather up the 400 men that are with him and to basically lead as a guide to get Jacob where he's going, which would be back home eventually. 
Uh, Notice there the language at the beginning of verse 12, let us take our journey and go. I mean, this is like a collective group. They're all one in Esau's mind. Let us take our journey. Again, this relationship is revived. It's, It's renewed. It's strengthened. So Esau says, look, I'll take the lead. I'll take charge. I'll lead the way. Well, Jacob, for legitimate reasons, he resists the offer mainly because he knew it would be difficult on the children, on his wives, on the cattle that he had. Verse 13, we're told that the children were frail. All that means that they were probably exhausted and tired. Verse 13, it tells us that the flocks would die. His cattle, his livestock, the flocks that he had, they weren't built to make hard trips like Esau and company. So Jacob respectfully declines uh, the author. But as I mentioned before, this going back and forth uh, scene is demonstrating that they are on good terms. They are on good terms. Well, that brings us to the second and final part of this scene, and this will uh, wrap up our chapter. Not only have we seen that Jacob and Esau finally reunite after 20 years, praise God, We see that Jacob and Esau part ways. We see that they part ways. Verse 16. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sirah. Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booze for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Succoth. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem which shows up later on here in Genesis, which is in the land of Canaan when he came from Paddan Aram and camped before the city. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of his sons, Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. And there he erected, and then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohoi Israel. So Esau returns to Sarah, and Jacob journeyed to Succoth. Their departure to two different locations is meant to show, and don't miss this, their departure to two different locations is meant to show that although they are reconciled, they are on two completely different courses. Even though Esau is showing acts of humility, even he's showing a sense of reconciliation with Jacob, ultimately he falls on the unrighteous line, the unvirtuous line, the unchosen line of the 315 seed, and it shows him, the narrative does, departing in one way. Jacob, on the other hand, is heading straight for the promised land. Because he's on a completely different line. He's on the chosen line. He's on the virtuous line. He's on the righteous line. So they depart. In Succoth, we're told, Jacob built a house and made booths, like the hardest word ever to say, booths, and a shelter for his livestock. He named the place Succoth, which means shelters, So you can see what he's doing there. 
And the reason he stops here and not in the promised land yet is for the health and revitalization of the family. I mean, just think about traveling in the ancient world. And I remember back, like four years A lot of walking, livestock, kids, this is hard. So they stop here in Sukkoth as a temporary place on the way to the promised land. Verse 18 describes that Jacob and company then leave Sukkoth and they head to the city of Shechem. So a lot of time passes in those couple verses. Now what's interesting, think with me here. Remember back in chapter 32, Jacob basically, he, he gives everything that he has up to the Lord and says, Lord, deliver me, save me, rescue me. Esau's coming with 400 men. I, I don't want to die. I don't want my family to die. And our gracious God heard his prayer and responded. And in fact, just as Jacob requested, God delivered. He saved and rescued Esau, or Jacob rather, from Esau. He heard his prayer and responded. What does this mean in the larger picture of Genesis? Well, this means that the Abrahamic covenant those promises in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that not only have they passed from him to Isaac, those promises will now pass from Isaac to Jacob, or better known now as Israel. Israel. Well, that essentially wraps up Jacob's story in the Genesis narrative as it relates to his character transformation. It has happened. It has taken place. And by God's grace, he will ultimately father the 12 tribes of Israel, and that nation will be born and raised up through him. But as we end our time this morning, by way of application, there's really only one point, and it's character transformation. Shocking, but that's where we've been last week and this week, Genesis 32 and 33. There was a point in Jacob's life where he was dead in his trespasses and sins, that he was blinded by the God of this world, that he was seated in the lap of the evil one, that he was in bondage to his sin. He was a slave to it, not running towards God, but always desiring to run away from God. And then a moment's time during his life, he was radically changed. He was regenerated, made from being dead in his trespasses and sins to being made alive. For the first time in Genesis 32 and 33, he was no longer dead but alive. He was no longer blind but could 
see. Now, I submit to you that if that radical transformation, salvation has not happened to you, if you are still walking in your sin, if you are still blind, walking in the darkness, let me offer to you the person and work of Jesus Christ, the God-man who was born into this world, who lived 33 years, and he lived 33 years just like we are currently living now, except without sin. And then he went to the cross to die on the cross for sins and for the sins of all of those who would repent and believe in him. If you have not turned from your sins, if you throw yourself upon Christ, he will have indeed died on that cross for you and your sins. You can be given new life today. This radical transformation that we see from Jacob can begin for you now. Not being born of anything that you have done or anything from this world, but being born from above, being born again. Come to Christ today for salvation. For many of us across this room, we have had that moment in time. We have come to faith in Christ. Not based on anything we have done, but everything that he has done. But our journey doesn't stop here. We don't need to pitch a tent. We need to continue to press on and go forward to the promised land. Of course, that context looks different essentially than a land piece that they were looking for in the book of Genesis. We hope for that new and glorious city that is spoken of in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, that's depicted in Revelation 21 and 22. We continue to press on for Christ in our radical transformation that has been brought upon our own heart and our own life. If we profess Christ today, may we live like that profession as demonstrated here in the life of Jacob. Pray with me. God, we are grateful that you have given us your word. If, if it wasn't for your precious word, we would have no idea of the radical transformation of Jacob as you have given us in Genesis 32 and 33. May that be forever stuck on our own mind and our own heart, the fact that he was changed. And may that be true of us every one of us here today. We're grateful that we live on this side of the cross where we have your full revelation that speaks of everything that Jacob ultimately longed for. We have seen that in Christ in whom we bow before in worship and in whose name we pray, amen.